Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Tim Matsis. Titled this morning's message, Ali Baba Goes to Church. And probably for most of the younger generation, Ali Baba is a website. But for those of us who are a little bit older, Ali Baba means something else. And for those who don't know the story, Ali Baba was a woodcutter, a poor woodcutter. And one day while he's out cutting wood, he overhears some thieves who have come to hide their treasure in a cave. Ali Baba stands quietly as he, as he listens to these thieves. He hears them utter some magic words. Does anyone know what the magic words were? Open sesame. Open sesame were the magic words. And as he hears one of them say, open sesame, the entrance to a cave suddenly opens. A big sto stone rolls away to the side. And he sees them carry their hoard of treasure into the cave. And when they finish planting their hoard of treasure in the cave, he hears the words, close sesame. And the stone rolls again in front of the cave. Well, to cut a long story short, knowing these magic words allows Ali Baba to collect all the treasure in the cave and to live happily ever after. For those of you who didn't know the story, you've probably figured out by now that it's a fairy tale. Just a made-up story. But it might surprise you to learn that there are many Christians who I know who in a certain way believe this story to be true. You wonder, how is that? Well, I'll tell you how that is. And it's because of certain texts in the Bible. Certain texts in the Bible have caused many Christians to believe that the principle contained in the story of Ali Baba and the 40 thieves is true. Texts like this one, John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Peter said this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, after a man had been healed, Peter said these words, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now Jesus himself said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Ghost. How do you get into heaven? Well, in the minds of some Christians, all you have to do is come and say the magic name. Now, not open sesame, of course, but as long as you use the name of Jesus or some other name, perhaps in Greek, perhaps in Hebrew, you'll be saved. Or at least your prayers will be answered. Or so they believe. In fact, there's even a popular religious song. Maybe you've heard it. It says, there's just something about that name. And of course, it's speaking of Jesus numerous times over and over again. <coughs> this morning, I want to tell you that using the name of Jesus, whether you do it in Greek, Hebrew or English, will actually not get you anywhere. Why? Because the Bible teaches that there's no such thing as a magic name. Open sesame doesn't work when we're trying to get to heaven. Let me share a story with you out of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, that illustrates this point. It says there in Acts chapter 19 that there, speaking of Ephesus, there were certain of the vagabond Jews who were exorcists. Do you know what an exorcist is? Yeah, someone who believes that they can drive out an evil spirit, popularized by some very misleading movies. Some vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. It says in verse 14, And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. They were having an exorcism. And when they heard that the name of Jesus had power, they decided to use the name of Jesus to exorcise these evil spirits from these people who were possessed. Now, how do you suppose that worked out for them? I guess if this name was so powerful, the moment they mentioned it, the devils would start running for cover. I mean, if the devil is afraid of words, if words alone can capture spiritual power, surely this exorcism would be successful. Perhaps today they would pull out some crosses or some holy water to go with it. Acts chapter 19 and verse 15 to 17 tells us this. When they conducted this exorcism, the evil spirit answered them back and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped upon them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Not a very successful exorcism, is it? Instead of the evil spirit running away at the name of Jesus, the evil spirit comes out and leaps on them and beats them up. And they end up running away. It says, When the story was known to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling at Ephesus, that fear fell upon them all. 
and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Why didn't open sesame work for these sons of Sceva? Why was this exorcism unsuccessful when they dropped the name? You know, you heard of people that like to drop names? You know what that means, don't you? People who do name dropping in a conversation. They mention someone famous or someone well known and think it's going to get them somewhere. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid growing up, all the guys, um, all my Polynesian friends, when you mentioned the name Michael Jones, he was a very famous all black, they would say, oh yeah, he's my cousin, they would say. Yeah. Of course he was. <laughs> yeah. That means you can play rugby just like him, right? Yeah. Name dropping. These folk dropped the name of Jesus into an exorcism and thought it would work for them. Why didn't it work? Well, I think you've probably figured out by now that there's no magic in the name itself. You know, in South America, it's very common for people to call their kids by the name of Jesus. In New Zealand, you can't do that. They won't let you. you know, but in South America, it's quite common. You know, I'm sure every parent that named their kid Jesus probably hoped he was going to grow up to be just like him. But there's no magic in a name, is there? You see, even today we understand this. If I was to say that someone was Solomon, what would you think of that person? You would think that I was saying he was wise. Yeah? What if I called a young woman a Jezebel or a Delilah? Perhaps you shouldn't say what you would think that might mean. Or if I called a, a person a Judas, what am I saying about that person? Yeah, they're untrustworthy, deceitful. You see, a person doesn't suddenly become wise or promiscuous or deceitful just because I change their name, does it? If I called you a certain name, that wouldn't make you something. They get called the name because I understand something about their character that makes me call them that, yeah? Notice this in Genesis chapter 32. You may remember the story of Jacob. You see, Jacob was promised the birthright, which means you get most of the inheritance and you also get the spiritual blessing in the family. But there was a problem. You see, Jacob was the younger son, so he wasn't actually entitled to it. And all his life he grew up thinking to himself, how am I going to get this? Yeah? How am I going to get this birthright? Now God had promised it to him, so he should have probably just trusted God, right? But instead of trusting God, the Bible says that he decided to conspire with his mother, to deceive his father, to cheat his brother, to get the birthright. Hmm? So instead of trusting God, he lets go of God and decides to do things his own way. And as a result of that, in fear, he ends up running away from home to save his life. Not a very successful attempt. Anyway, one day he has to face his fears again. And his brother Esau, we're told, is coming towards him with an army of men to kill him. So Jacob spends some time praying. 
And that night while he's praying, suddenly someone leaps upon him and grabs a hold of him. And he has to wrestle with this person he thinks is his enemy. At some point during this battle, he realizes that the person he thinks is his enemy is actually Jesus himself. This time, instead of saying, Jesus, go away from me. I'll do things my own way. This time he clings to the angel, which is Jesus. Listen to what it says in Genesis 32 and verses 26 to 28. It says there, and he, that's Jesus, said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he, that's Jacob, said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. This time Jacob decides he's going to hold on to God no matter what. Yeah. Instead of doing things his own way, he needs Jesus to help him. Yeah. He needs to know that Jesus is with him in everything he does, that Jesus has forgiven his sins. Yeah. And so Jesus says to him, What is your name? And he says, Jacob. You know what the word Jacob means? Deceiver. Or supplanter. In other words, someone who gets somewhere by doing the wrong thing, by being deceitful. And he said to him, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Do you know what Israel means? Yeah, overcomer. Yeah. For as a prince you have had power with God and with men and have prevailed. You see what happened here? Jacob's character had changed. And so God changes his name. You see, in the Bible, character is represented by the name. The name on its own means nothing. But it's the character that the name represents that means something. And as the seven sons of Sceva found out, using the name doesn't do anything for you. It's only important insofar as it represents the character of the thing being represented, of the thing being named. You know, this is a very important principle because, do you know, throughout Christian history, people, in fact, throughout the Bible, people have constantly put tokens, visible things, emblems as having power while ignoring the actual power behind them. Let me give you another example of this. When I was a kid, there was a movie that came out. I'm telling you lots of foolish stories today. But there was a movie that came out, and it was called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Had all the superstars acting in it. It was a very sort of cult-famous movie. You see, this ark, the Ark of the Covenant, was uh, believed to possess magic powers. And so the race was on to find it. Of course, you find the ark, you get the power, right? Isn't that how it works? A little bit like Aladdin and his lamp and all those sorts of stories. They thought that the ark had power. So you get the, the ark, you get the power. You know, and there's good reason for them believing this. You may recall the story of when Jericho was uh, attacked and overcome. What did they carry around in front of them? The ark. 
And, uh, you know, when David was carrying the ark up to Jerusalem on a cart and uh, the oxen stumbled and one of the men reached out to steady the ark, his name was Uzzah. Do you remember what happened to him? He died just from touching the ark. Okay, this ark was sacred. Anyway, one day there was... A, an army that came against Israel. And you'll find the story in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And as this army uh, was gathered against Israel, there were two corrupt priests. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. And they thought to themselves, well, you know, what can we do to win this battle? And one of them had a bright idea. Well, you know, the ark, the ark's got magic powers. If we take the ark with us, we'll win. And so they carried the ark out into the battle. And uh, the enemy, when they heard that the ark was coming, because they were all heathens, they thought, man, we're in trouble now. Don't you know what's happened when this ark has been around? People have died. Nations are destroyed. Plagues come out and attack people. We're in real trouble, they thought. So the enemy were afraid of the ark as well. But guess what? Israel lost the battle. The ark didn't help a bit. The ark was captured by the enemy. The two priests who had the idea were killed and 30,000 men in Israel died. Why? Why didn't the ark help them? You see, the ark contained the law of God. The law of God represents the character of God. It describes the things that he agrees with and the things that he doesn't. These men had the ark of God, but they didn't have the character that was in harmony with what the ark represented. You see, on its own, this ark was just a box. Just a box covered with gold. They might as well have carried a a cardboard box with them. It didn't do anything. It's the character. You know, last week we had communion here, didn't we? Now, I want to ask you, you know, when you drank that magic grape juice and you ate the magic bread, were you suddenly holy after you did that? Yeah. You come into church and you, you know, love watching bad movies and swearing and, you know, doing all these sorts of things. If you drink the magic juice and eat the magic bread, will you suddenly walk out of here holy and loving good things and hating bad things? Is that what it does? It doesn't do anything. You might as well have eaten a bag of chips. You see, John, Jesus said in the book of John, he said, the words that I speak unto you, They are spirit and they are life. It's only as we bring ourselves into harmony with the character of the person that those symbols represent that we can really find power. You know, this is a very important subject because the Bible tells us that as Satan has used symbols and words as he's held up things that are visible 
to deceive people into false religion throughout the Bible. At the end of time, Satan is going to do this in a very marked way. If we think that magic words, sacred objects, and things like that are going to scare away devils or open the gates of heaven, then we are mistaken. But you know, today this deception is rife throughout the Christian world. And through a religion based on external things, Satan is deceiving the world, just like Jesus predicted he would. Notice what Jesus himself says, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 5. Speaking of the end of time, it says, Therefore many shall come, what? In my name. Yeah. In other words, their exterior would appear to represent who? Jesus. They claim that they represent Christ. He says, Many will come in my name and shall deceive many. In other words, he will be successful with his deceptions. Paul warns in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 13 to 15. Notice this. He says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers. Notice what they do. Transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. I always laugh when I see you know, those signs for hell pizza. Yeah. They have this devil with a pitchfork and flames. You know? Satan would like to have us think of him in that way. But the Bible tells us that he approaches the world not as the devil, mostly, but he approaches as an angel of light. He comes in Jesus' name. And Paul says it's no wonder if his ministers are also transformed into ministers of righteousness, because Satan himself transforms into an angel of light to deceive people. It's simply false for us and foolish for us to think to ourselves that because something is called Christian, because it has the name of Jesus on it, that it will be effective in bringing us salvation or bringing us closer to heaven. Revelation, 20, uh, Revelation 12 and verse 12 warns us that Satan has come down to the earth with great wrath because he knows his time is short. And 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 10 tells us that Satan will work with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. It's a big tongue twister, isn't it? But it basically says if there's a way to trick you, he will use it. You know, Revelation 13 describes a great deception that will happen in the world just before Jesus comes. Revelation 13 and verse 11 says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. Okay? A beast is a power. This beast has two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. What does it mean when it says it has two horns like a lamb? <clears throat> it not only looks nice, sweet and nice, why? Two horns like a lamb. You've got it. John chapter 1 and verse 29, John the Baptist says, Behold the 
Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Speaking of Jesus, this beast comes up out of the earth, having two horns like a lamb. It claims to be Christ-like. It comes in Jesus' name. But it says it speaks like a dragon. Those in our study class will know. Revelation 12 and verse 9, the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out to the earth and his angels with him. At the end of time, there is a power working in the earth who purports to be Christian, who comes in Jesus' name, but actually speaks like a dragon. In other words, it speaks for Satan. Isn't that a terrible thing? The Bible says that this power will deceive people. In Revelation 13, verse 13 and 14, it says, He doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had the power to do. Let's just put that together. We have a power that purports to come in Jesus' name, but actually speaks for Satan, and will have the power to work miracles. In other words, we will see miracles performed in Jesus' name, but they will be actually carried out by whose power? Satan's. Can you imagine going up to someone and telling them that they're working miracles by the power of Satan, even though they're doing it in Jesus' name? Do you think that would go down well? Probably not. And yet we're told that these are the very things that will happen on the earth before Jesus comes. People working miracles in Jesus' name, but actually using the power of Satan. Why do you think Satan does that? To trick everybody. He's out there to deceive people. Yeah? And that great, great battle over the character of God, the great battle over the Ten Commandments, whether we should obey God or whether we should obey the devil. He wants to lead people away from obedience to God and take them as his captives, forever trapped in sin, forever trapped in disobedience to his commandments, always forming a character that's opposed to God and eternal life, but all the while believing that they're following Jesus. Great scheme, hey? Revelation 13 goes on to say that by using Jesus' name, by putting the label of Christian on everything, the whole world, or most of the world, will eventually receive the mark of the beast. Do you see those things in the world today? Do we see the relabeling of bad things, the blurring of distinctiveness between true Christianity and worldliness? Do we see that today? Do we have Christian political parties? Do we have 
Christian dating sites, Christian movies, Christian novels, Christian coffee clubs, Christian jewellery. I even saw a sign saying something about selling Christian lingerie. We have contemporary Christian music, Christian books on leadership, Christian books on business. We even have the Christian Sabbath, which of course is on Sunday. And so on. It's actually very simple, isn't it? All the devil has to do is take something worldly, label it Christian, and most people swallow it. The question we need to ask ourselves is not, is it Christian? But is it Christ-like? We should not be asking, are they using Jesus' name? But do they represent Jesus' character? Only something that is Christ-like is truly Christian. Everything else is a deception of Satan. Something is not Christian because we call it Christian, but because it measures up with the standard of the character of Christ. How do we know if it meets the standard of character of Christ? Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20 says very plainly, to the law and to the testimony. In other words, to the Ten Commandments and to what the prophets have written. If they don't speak according to what's in God's word, there is no light in them. When somebody claims to be performing a miracle in Jesus' name, but all the while they teach people disobedience to God's law, are they acting on Christ's behalf? Do they speak for Christ? No. We must test everything that claims to be connected to Christ by the words of Christ himself recorded in the Bible. The Bible warns us that Satan's favorite means of attacking us is to veil something wrong, worldly and evil, in sacerdotal garments and call it Christian. But as the seven sons of Sceva found out, this vestigial use of Jesus' name, the labeling of something as Christian, might help to deceive us for a while. We might be able to deceive ourselves into thinking it's all okay. But it won't stand the test of the judgment. You know, this is one of the reasons why God commanded in Exodus chapter 20. He said, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. God will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. We take God's name in vain when we claim that something is Christian when really it isn't. When we put Jesus' name or Jesus' seal of approval on something which God himself does not approve of, we are taking his name in vain. You know, the biggest deception that we can practice is not just labeling things that are wrong as being Christian. The biggest deception that we can practice is when we indulge 
in the practice of labeling ourselves as Christians when our hearts are not really with God. You know, Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 7 that many will come to him in the judgment and be turned away. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 22 and 23, Jesus says, Many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord. See, they like to use Jesus' name. Have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? Did these people just pretend to preach or pretend to cast out devils or pretend to work miracles? No, they did it. They did wonderful works, the Bible says, and they did it in Jesus' name. Verse 23 says, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. In other words, the distinguishing feature, the thing that we can use to determine whether they were really speaking in Jesus' name or just pretending to represent Jesus, is whether they worked what? Iniquity. Jesus says we can know whether people who speak in Jesus' name really represent him. Because he says that these, this group of people here did not represent him because they worked iniquity. What's iniquity? Sin. What's sin? How do we know what sin is? 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 says that sin is transgression of the law. You see, these people were doing everything right as far as church was concerned. They might have been elders in the church or pastors, evangelists. They came dressed for church. They carried Bibles. They, worked, they had healing services, perhaps. They sang hymns and other songs. But there was one thing missing. They didn't obey God's law. They were workers of iniquity. They weren't like Christ. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Has God made known to us what his will is? Is it very plain? Did he write it on tables of stone with his own finger? You know, he's ever saying, you know, what part of no don't you understand? Yeah? It's very simple, isn't it? Are the Ten Commandments plain? Easy to understand? Jesus says that only those that do his will will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those that speak in his name but don't obey him won't. There's no third group, is there? Jesus asked the question in Luke 6, verse 46. He said, and why do you call me Lord, Lord? Notice he keeps repeating his name all the time. You met people that do this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? It's a contradiction, isn't it? To call someone Lord, Lord in, in, implies that they're in charge, doesn't it? You call them Lord, but you don't obey. 
You're using my name, but you don't represent my character. I've told you what my character is. It's written in the Ten Commandments. That's what I'm into, and that's what I'm not into. You use my name, but you don't represent my character. You're using my name in vain. It's a waste of time calling me Lord if you don't obey me. You're making a joke of me. If we are really Jesus followers, our lives will reflect him. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having the seal. The Lord knows them that are his. How does he know? And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. In plain English, we would say, let everyone that calls themselves a Christian, a follower of Christ, stop breaking God's law. Depart from iniquity. Stop doing it. Is it plain? I think it's pretty plain. You see, these people will come, and I hope I'm not one of them, to the gates of heaven, and they will say, open sesame. But the gates won't open. They won't get the heavenly treasure. You see, their religion has been nothing more than a fairy tale. They've read Christian books. They've watched Christian movies. They've sung Christian songs, or so-called. But they haven't followed the book that describes the character of Christ. They believed Christian fables from Christian leaders who taught in Jesus' name, but they never checked it with Christ himself. I wonder what our position is today. Are we followers of Christ or do we just call ourselves Christians? Do we love the character of Jesus? described in his word and in his law? Or do we just use his name? You know, one day when I was in my teens, and I can tell this story because mum's not coming till next week. <clears throat> when I was in my teens, one of my family members came to my sister and I with an idea. I don't remember all the details, but the substance of it was something like this. You see, he wanted to get a job. He wanted some money. But he was only eight years of age and you had to be 16 to get this job so he had a solution monkey wisdom jungle doctor would call it he'd found his birth certificate in dad's filing cabinet where dad stored all our all our important documents and he had got his birth certificate out and having learned to read and write he got himself a biro and he noticed that if he changed the, the year, the date that he was born, then he could change his age. And so that's just what he did. And he got his biro and he scribbled over the end bit of the, where the year was to change it so that he was now 16. And he came and showed my sister and I, and we laughed him to scorn, <laughs> as you would. <coughs> um, we were actually mortified that he had done this to a birth certificate you know, sort of important documents and you know, scrawling over them with pen. It really just doesn't, doesn't do, does it? And uh, as I say, we liberally mocked 
his foolish attempt to alter a document, a legal document. Can you imagine how stupid he would appear if he turned up to an employer and said, yeah, I'm 16. Probably should raise my voice a few pictures. And then handed a birth certificate over with biro scrawled on it. Stupid, isn't it? I wish I could tell you that was the end of the story. It wasn't. You see, in response to our mocking him, and this is what many Christians do too, isn't it? They harden their hearts. And my uh, family member hardened his heart and came up with another plan. You see, also on Dad's desk, he had found some twink. And so he twinked out his messy attempt. And this time he wrote very neatly with the biro the new birth date that he wanted. He was very excited by this development and he paraded his new forgery in front of us. There was one major flaw, however, in his logic. You see, this birth certificate was printed on blue paper and Twink is white. Biro is blue, I suppose. Do you think you'll get that past the employer? You see, we need to be the genuine article, don't we? A forgery just won't cut it. And we'll look as stupid as my family member would have looked when he had turned, it up, turned up to an employer with this twinked out birth certificate. That's how foolish it looks to God, friends, when we use his name in vain. We need to be the genuine article, not a forgery. We can call things Christian, but it doesn't make them Christ-like. We might use the right names for God. We might use his name over and over again, just like the heathen do. But that won't give us his character. I found this comment in the book Christ's Object Lessons. Page 312, she says, Christ himself will decide who are worthy to dwell with the family of heaven. He will judge every man according to his words and his works. And notice this bit. She says, profession is as nothing in the scale. It is character that decides destiny. Say, oh, that's just Ellen White. But is that what we just read out of the Bible? Is that what Jesus himself said? Profession is as nothing in the scale. It is character that decides destiny. What's your character this morning? Have you been living a fairy tale? Perhaps you want to make sure in your heart that your life represents the character of the name Christian rather than just calling yourself a Christian. You see, for our lives to represent Christ, we actually have to have Jesus in the heart. We can't just be a forgery. 
We heard last week, he who has the Son has life. It's only as we have Jesus in the heart, it's only as Jesus changes our character, as he moulds our life to be like him, that we can really call ourselves Christians. It doesn't just happen once where we get a badge to put on that says Christian. It has to happen every day, moment by moment. We have to have Jesus in our hearts so that we can really represent the name Jesus. Friends, I hope that when that day comes, you and I won't be left calling out open sesame at the gates of heaven. I hope that we'll be able to read our title clear and that Jesus will recognize us as his because our characters have become like his through obedience to his word. This message was made available by the Masterton Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit mastertonsta.nz. in the skies I'll bid farewell to every fear and wipe my weeping eyes and wipe my weeping eyes and wipe my weeping eyes I'll bid And wipe my weeping eyes Should earth against my soul engage And fiery darts be hurled Then I can smile at Satan's rage And face a frowning world And face a frowning world And face a frowning world That I can smile at Satan's rage And face a frowning world Let cares like a wild deluge come and storms of sorrow fall. May I but safely reach my home, my God, my heaven, my all. My God, my heaven, my all. My God, my heaven, my all. May shall I bathe my way
in seas of heavenly rest, and not a wave of trouble roll across my peaceful breast, across my peaceful breast, across my peaceful breast, and not a wave of trouble roll across my peaceful breast. Michael Lining sang, When I Can Read My Title Clear. And up next, Ben Everson will sing, Trust and Obey. When we walk with the Lord In the light of His Word What a glory He sheds on our way While we do His good will He abides with us still And with all who will trust and obey For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay for the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey then in fellowship sweet we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side Trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and folks, William Macklin with you again. Today I would like to share with you on the subject of seconds. I am looking at the large face of my kitchen clock, not at the hour or minute hands, but at the slender second hand, relentlessly consigning the seconds into eternity. A second is a small piece of time, so surely it cannot be important. Just tell that, though, to the Formula One racing car driver who has won the final race of the season by just five one-thousandth of a second, or the athlete 
a champion 400-metre runner who edged forward at the line and won by one hundredth of a second. Or tell that to the soldier who, unknowingly, made a quick movement of his head and thus dodged a bullet that otherwise would have bored into him right in the middle of his forehead. So, seconds, while a short passage of time, are important. We live our lives in seconds that add up to minutes, then hours, days, weeks, months and years. Just one second at a time that cannot be recalled. And where do seconds come from? From a very large ball, Mother Earth no less, the planet we call home. Its revolutions, approximately one every 24 hours, are where seconds come from. A second, of course, is the way minutes and hours and days are divided into. This is a very convenient way to accurately record and predict time and events. For common everyday use, that is. For astronomical and scientific purposes, other more exact measurements are used, but they are beyond the scope of this article. It was the Babylonians who used the sexagesimal system, that is counting in 60s, that was used in mathematics and astronomy. They had borrowed this system from the Sumerians, who are understood to have used this system earlier still. Seconds and minutes and hours are used to give people an idea of an approximate or an exact time when they can expect an event to happen. I'll be back in a minute really means that the person would return in a short time, which could be a number of minutes. Similarly, I'll ring you back in 10, could mean rarely in five minutes, or more probably in 15 or 20. A slightly annoying notice that is posted on the door of a business place may say, back in 10, which begs the question, when did the 10 commence? The word seconds is used in ways other than when relating to time. Your kind host may ask you, after you have enjoyed the delicate sweetness of a dessert, would you like a second? And in sport, seconds are close and active supporters of a sports person who realises how valuable is that very support. But it is the brief period of time we call a second that is of interest in this article. The matter of correct timing, often to a fraction of a second, is what is required in many areas of life, particularly since the mechanical revolution occurred. Even before then, when exquisitely made watches and other precise instruments, such as chronometers, were made, these had to be accurate to a very fine degree. Just how fine? Check the internet. Where human life is involved, accuracy is that much more important such as in a large passenger plane, or more particularly in a space rocket, carrying precious human cargo to a space station. Just imagine how the crew would feel flashing by the space station into outer space because of inaccurate instruments and controls. In a past era, we would say, look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. Perhaps the same principle applies here. And it may even be more important that if we look after the seconds, the hours, days, weeks and months will look after themselves. It is a general principle that small things are important. This is critically so when dealing with life. For all life starts off small, 
and when all goes well, as it usually does, this small piece of life, an embryo or a sequoia seed, will grow to become something wonderful, to be loved or admired. When checking the time by the kitchen clock, however powered, we do not ex expect precision. What we want to know is where we are in the space of the morning, afternoon or evening. Some people have the gift of being good estimators of time, but for the most of us, a clock or watch of some kind is good enough. In recent years, the mobile phone gives us a very accurate time, and often we tend to judge other timepieces by what our mobile phone says. Time is important to God too, but in a different way to us. In the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4, it is interesting to read in this respect where it says, But at just the right time, God sent his Son into the world through the miracle of human birth born subject to the law. So as I wind up these few words, just how many seconds have elapsed? I cannot tell, for this article has been written in two spells and I did not think of timing myself before I commenced. Some things are important and others are not. The important thing is that we value time and use it well, for it was Benjamin Franklin who said, time is the stuff life is made of. Jesus lived on earth 2,000 years ago. He said in John chapter 5, verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. Jesus also said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If Jesus said this about his human nature, how much more does it apply to us today? Jesus confirms our helplessness to save ourselves in John chapter 15, verse 5, where he said, Without me, you can do nothing. If it behooved Jesus to seek his Father's will and to rely on his Father's strength, how much more should we also seek the will of God and rely on his strength? Then we can claim the promise of God in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm Etienne McClintock for In a Bible Minute, where God can change your life in a moment and in the blink of an eye. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.